Episode 77 of Lime Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with us from lovely La Jolla, California, is our certified show producer and the brains behind our business, Aurora. Hello, and I'm so excited to share today's interview with Dr. Kate. She's done a lot of in-depth research on a vitamin we don't hear much about, K2. Yes, indeedy. But before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know about our free brainwave breathing cheat sheet. See, some experts believe a big part of Lyme brain is the dissynchronization between the left and the right hemispheres. And I also noticed that in all my Lyme patients that their blood oxygen levels are always a little bit low. What this all adds up to are the Lyme brain symptoms you are so familiar with. Problems accessing words, problems accessing names, forgetting things, you get easily confused and overwhelmed, and even word salad where your words come out all jumbled up. Brainwave breathing is a simple and powerful technique to clear brain fog. It combines two ancient powerful techniques that drive oxygen into the brain and increase the balance and communication between the left and right hemispheres. It's easy. Anybody can do it anywhere. And it works. Here's what one Lime Ninja, Jillowaze B, has to say. Brainwave breathing helps me to mentally relax. It has a meditative quality, too, and definitely helps me focus. There really is no negative aspect to this technique. I even did it while driving in my car. It may have looked odd, but who cares? If you want to get your free Brainwave Breathing Cheat Sheet, Brainwave Breathing Cheat Sheet, and video training, just pop on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com for the details. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Okay, Aurora, tell us a little bit about today's Lime expert, Dr. Kate. And this is from her website, DrKateND.com. Dr. Kate graduated from McMaster University with a Bachelor of Science Honors in Biology and completed her professional training at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto. Dr. Kate is a Canadian expert in natural medicine and a contributing editor to several health-related publications. Born and raised on Montreal's West Island, Kate now makes her home in Ancaster, Ontario, just west of Hamilton, with her husband, sons, and Chloe, the Great Dane. Thanks, Aurora. Here's our interview with Dr. Kate. Let's introduce you to our listeners. So how how did you get interested in healthcare and what led you to your path of being a naturopath? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I thought I was going to follow in the footsteps of an older sister who's a medical doctor, and I went to, you know, chose a university based on its great med school. And the more time I spent um, in the hospital, for example, uh, as, a, as a keen pre-med student, the more I realized it was somehow missing something for me. And of course, they're doing a lot of great work there, but yet it wasn't really drawing me in the way I thought it would. And through my own experiences with health as well, I turned towards naturopathic medicine and uh, decided to pursue that path in terms of my career. And I've, I've never looked back. And so for you, what was, what was the difference between the two? I mean, first of all, in case people don't know, what's a naturopath? 
Oh, naturopathic doctor is a uh, licensed primary care physician. And we have a similar training to a GP in that you require you know, an undergraduate university degree plus four years full-time and an accredited school for naturopathic medicine. And there's uh, six of those in North America. And after that, I did two years of residency and personally spent some time on faculty of the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, although that's not uh, necessarily typical. But uh, there are, of course, um, board exams that are uh, apply you know, across North America, as well as the specific region in which you're going to be practicing, as well as ongoing, you know, continuing education to maintain your license, that kind of thing. So very similar to, say, a family doctor, but instead of prescribing pharmaceutical medications, although in some jurisdictions, NDs do actually have access to prescribed pharmaceuticals, uh, we typically look at dietary changes, uh, natural and alternative treatments in terms of botanical medicines, uh, nutritional supplements in some cases, traditional medicine and acupuncture can be part of it. And the idea is to try to treat the underlying cause of the problem and treat the whole person rather than just addressing specific symptoms. Beautiful. You've you've done that pitch before. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. That's a perfect. Uh, and do you do acupuncture? I do. Yes, that is part of the scope of my training and something that I find helpful. And so that is something I've done in practice for sure. That's my training. I'm an acupuncturist. So right. I think it's wonderful. The more, the merrier. I agree. Definitely. I know some people get into the uh, the professional, oh, you don't have this training or that training, and therefore you can't do my, but I'm of the mood of everybody should be sticky needles. <laughs> yeah, and, and working together as well. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, terrific. Okay, so you're a naturopath now. Then what led you to chase down vitamin K and get so excited that you wrote a book? Because that's pretty excited about a vitamin. It is actually, and it is it really is born of my passion about this particular subject and discovering a lot of research around this nutrient. I kind of, you know, happened upon by chance, I guess, some studies and I thought it was very interesting and so did a little bit more digging and found that there was quite a bit of research. I was surprised about the amount of research there was about vitamin K2 and people weren't talking about it and it had potentially uh, so many important health benefits and it was so much connected, first of all, to vitamin D and, you know, there was so much talk about vitamin D and there, there still is uh, so much research being done. Vitamin D and K2 work together and yet vitamin K2 really wasn't being discussed as well as uh, concerns around calcium were emerging uh, in terms of people who take calcium supplements having a far greater incidence of heart attacks and strokes due to calcium building up in soft tissues like arteries. And vitamin K2 stops that. It, it prevents and even reverses that in some cases. So I knew it was important for that reason. And it just seemed to be um, a missing piece and an overlooked piece to the puzzle of health for, for so many different conditions that I thought, you know, I, I had to write a book about it to get the information out there. Great. And when people hear vitamin K, they think of coagulation, the German word, the the discoverer of vitamin K was German. And vitamin K2 is not K1 at all. So what's the difference between the two? 
That's right. This is a really important point because this is the reason why we haven't heard about vitamin K2, the reason why it was overlooked for so long because of this uh, mistaken identity or, or mix-up between K1 and K2. Uh, the vitamin K is a family of vitamins like the B vitamins. You can't say take some vitamin B because that doesn't make sense because there's lots of different ones. Same thing with vitamin K. Fortunately, there's only two main members of this family, K1 and K2. They were both discovered at the same time, around the 1930s. And you're right, vitamin K1, is uh, its main role in our health is in blood clotting. It comes from green leafy vegetables. And it's blood clotting is so important that our intake of this nutrient is not left to our, you know, the whims of our diet and how much green leafy vegetables we've, we've had. There's a system to recycle vitamin K1. So we're just about never deficient. It's extremely rare to be deficient in vitamin K1. You can more or less take it for granted. And researchers, when they discovered this at the time, noticed this other nutrient, vitamin K2, and they figured that's just another version of a blood clotting vitamin, just another version of K1, and they left it at that. But vitamin K2 does not come from green leafy vegetables. It does not participate in blood clotting under normal circumstances. It plays a whole host of other roles in our health, and we don't recycle it. So, in fact, you can become deficient in vitamin K2 and pretty easily. Um, And, you know, so these are the reasons why these two nutrients were mixed up, and vitamin K2 was overlooked for almost 70 years. And we're just now beginning to appreciate that uh, deficiency is actually fairly common and it plays a big role in our health that we just didn't understand or appreciate before. Okay. that's. I want to go into a little sidebar here based on what you said about the, the differences between K1 and K2. And then we'll get back to what exactly K2 is doing sure. in the health. Can the body, and started off with a question, can your body convert K1 to K2 in small amounts? Very small amounts. Okay. And this is, a, this is another reason why vitamin K2 is overlooked. Because the body can make very small amounts of it, mm-hmm. researchers assumed that the body was making enough of it to meet our own needs and that we didn't need to worry about getting it from our diet. But in fact, that's not true. Uh, that The tiny amount that we do make mm-hmm. uh, doesn't seem to meet our own needs the way we um, really require Okay, and then the other thing, and I think I read this in your book, that part of the process of the body converting K1 to K2, there's an intermediary step where it produces a toxic form of K. Is that correct? No, not necessarily. I know where you're coming from. Uh, So there is a vitamin K3, uh, which can exist under certain circumstances. It's not made in, it's not typically made in significant amounts in the body. That can come from vitamin K1, but we don't usually see that um, in, in production, for example. Okay, so what I thought I had come across somewhere, and maybe it wasn't your book, but I, I'm pretty sure it was, that the base of the, the K molecule then has this chain that that goes off the side, and based on the length of that and the number of bonds is where it's called MK4, MK3, or MK exactly. whatever, yep. right? So in, in the process of changing K1 to K2, it cleaves this tail off mm-hmm. the main molecule, and that, and then reattaches another one, but sometimes that cleaved that individual piece the main piece of this vitamin doesn't get converted right away is that possible 
So yeah, they're under um, like under a stressful. I'm not talking about yeah. normal physiology, like somebody who's you know toxic with being really sick and. Because I'm, I'm actually leading somewhere with this in another question, but right, but. and I would think that maybe it's possible if your gut flora is disrupted or or other types of metabolic process is disrupted. That yes, under certain circumstances, vitamin K1 can be converted instead of to the helpful K2 form yeah. uh, to this K3 form uh, that is not helpful. Okay, and here's here's where I'm leading with this. There's a a, a protocol that my mentor taught me. It's called wet cup, wet cupping. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's a euphemism for bleeding, right? Yes. So, okay, so you're familiar with this. So yep. one of the hallmarks of somebody infected with Lyme disease is hypercoagulation. So you do this wet cupping, and when you remove the cup, what's left behind is not what you would imagine blood would be. It's more like jello. Hmm. So I'm wondering if part of the effect of the, the wet cupping. So the Chinese explanation is you're drawing the toxins out of the body. So maybe you actually are. And what you're doing is in bleeding a little bit, you're kind of calling the body say, wait, let's not convert this K1 to anything else right now. We need it for coagulation. And I'm- that's possible. And interestingly, K2, uh, helps prevent inappropriate coagulation ah, no in kidding. unexpected ways uh, using different mechanisms that I, I don't normally get into, but if you see that with Lyme disease, then that becomes pertinent. And, and I wondered if this was possibly part of the mechanism by which it may be involved. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's... Can you talk about that in a, in a very... in a nutshell? I don't want to lose too many people here with this specific thing. This isn't going to be about more in my practice than in general thing, but this, it's very, you know, if you've never had wet cupping done, it's, it's incredible and it can instantly change your state. Uh, pain can go away instantly, headaches, people, brain fog disappear within 15, 20 minutes. It's really a remarkable technique. And the coagulation part has, has got to be part of it. This, this K1, K2 metabolism and relationship has got to be part of it. Well, we know K2 better for its role in moving calcium around the body. We can mm-hmm. talk about that as we go on. But one thing it also does that um, unexpectedly prevents inappropriate blood clotting. It controls something called protein S. Protein S does a few things in the body. It helps with uh, cancer prevention. But it also seems to um, have a role in controlling uh, a clotting factor so as to make sure that inappropriate clots don't arise. And so I wonder if it's possible with if vitamin K2 levels are low that this isn't happening and, and this may be part of where you see this, this strange uh, clotting. Okay, so let's, since we're down this rabbit hole, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> Here's my speculation. I th- it, and I've come across a few studies that show that some bacteria use K2 as part of their respiration. Yes. And I'm wondering if Lyme disease and some of these other co-infections aren't K2 dependent or like K2 as part of their food chain, so to speak. So if you layer on top a K2 deficiency with a bacteria that's locally consuming, locally mean like in a biofilm or an area consuming K2, you would get like joint crystallization kind of stuff that would come and go. It's like once your immune system kind of chased the 
the disease away, the bacteria away, then the K2 would return and you would get rid of it. So you'd have these traveling pains through the body. And maybe that's what explains why the bacteria, the Borrelia, is burrowing into cartilage because cartilage just tends to be a little bit rich in K2 and the same for the brain. So, yes. man, it's like it's there's too many between the function of K2 and we really haven't gotten that too much and the way the the Borrelia behaves is like man there's got to be a K2 component to it there has to be well i think that it stands to reason actually um and and in terms of looking at the mechanisms and we've seen examples of mechanisms with other bacteria in which they sort of um either make use of or shut down certain pathways of K2 production hmm. in order to uh, evade detection by the immune system yeah. and become more toxic. Yeah. And so uh, I'd love to see that kind of work with uh, Borrelia. And I think that may, it's, a, it's a, an, a mechanism that we see with other microorganisms. Okay. And have you come across the paper by, and this is putting you on the spot and I apologize, mm-hmm. by um, Doug Laverne? and Beth Marbois about uh, metaquinone and brain astrocytes. It's a speculative yes. paper. Did yes. you see that? Very, very interesting. So then, so if they're right, so they're speculating, to sum up, that K2 plays a part in the metabolism of these astrocytes. And astrocytes seem to be the one thing they do is these helper cells in the brain and the, the, the nervous system that helps the, the other brain cells, the other nerve cells uh, uptake glucose. And if they're impaired, then you would get things like chronic fatigue. You would get things like brain fall because the brain doesn't have the nutrition. The nutrition pathway that it needs is shut down. So right. here's another kind of Lyme, you know, classic Lyme symptom of just flat out fatigue and brain issues that could be K dependent. That's right. We know that vitamin K1, vitamin K2, when your levels are adequate, exists in fairly high concentrations in the brain, and yet we don't understand completely. We know some of what it's doing there and some of the benefits of having it there. Uh, we don't understand that completely, and yet that, that paper in terms of the astrocyte production, the mechanism they propose actually made a lot of sense to me because it mirrors exactly what, for example, vitamin K1 is doing in plants, helping to provide energy within plant cells. And so the fact that vitamin K2 can be helping to provide energy to certain types of brain cells uh, makes a lot of sense. Perfect. So that's a great opportunity. So let's back up now. What, what does K2 do in the body? Well, vitamin K2 does a number of things. It's best known for its ability to move calcium around the body. So making sure that calcium gets into the right places where we want it, the bones and the teeth, and keeping calcium out of areas where it can be dangerous, soft tissues like arteries, uh, heel spurs, kidney stones, uh, breast tissue calcification, heart valves, for example. And in those areas, calcium can be dangerous and even deadly. And vitamin K2 has been shown to prevent and even remove calcium from those areas. That's its big role in terms of how it's best known. It has other actions in the body as well uh, with regards to cell growth regulation, so cancer prevention and protection, insulin sensitivity, uh, and other things. But that's, that's how it's best known. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship of K2 and Alzheimer's? 
Yes, there's a lot of really interesting information in terms of vitamin K2 and cognitive function, dementia prevention, Alzheimer's in particular. We know that there's so many different directions here, but we, we know that vitamin K2, for example, has been shown to somehow prevent the oxidative damage that we see with uh, lack of blood flow to a certain area. So when we're talking about a stroke, head injury, even a small, a mini stroke like a transient ischemic attack, vitamin K2 has been shown to prevent the damage that's typically associated with that lack of blood flow. And one of the factors uh, that is associated with both Alzheimer's but even any kind of deterioration with the brain over time are, it would seem now, we know ultra micro mini strokes causing very, very small areas of, of brief lack of, of blood flow to different parts of the brain that could cause the brain to deteriorate over time. Alzheimer's in particular, of course, is characterized by these plaques and tangles, these buildup of inappropriate um, protein deposits in the brain. And interestingly, the number of those plaques and tangles, those protein deposits, will increase and peak 20 or 30 years before the symptoms of Alzheimer's even start. And so we know it's not just those plaques and tangles being there, but what they do to the brain tissue over time. And recent research has shown that those plaques and tangles may actually be built around a core structure of a, a little bit of calcium uh, that's holding them there. And, you know, we know that vitamin K2 has a pivotal role in, in taking calcium out of areas where it shouldn't be. And in addition to its other benefits, as well as some studies looking at people with low K2 levels being at greater risk for Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. it would seem that K2 has a big role to play in brain health both now as well as, you know, for the future dementia prevention. That's fascinating. Are you familiar, this is going to bridge the Alzheimer's to the Lyme world, with the work of Dr. Alan McDonald? Alan McDonald? No, I don't think I'm familiar with his work. Which He's fascinating. He's a retired pathologist, and he has cultured Alzheimer's brain tissue, the tangles, and has grown Borrelia at about 70% of them. Hmm. That's very interesting. It's beyond, yeah, it's beyond, it's like, here, here we go again. <laughs> so, you know, and then let's also pivot. I was, I was re-listening to your interview with Dave Asprey this morning in, in preparation. And you talked about K2 and oral health and bacteria load in the mouth. Oh, yes. This is a, to me, one of the most interesting areas of vitamin K2 research that really, you know, began quite a long time ago and hasn't been followed up in terms of, we know that again, when K2 levels are, your intake is adequate, K2 levels are high, vitamin K2 will concentrate in the saliva glands. And then, you know, the saliva essentially squirts K2 over the teeth and it helps keep the teeth and gums healthy. And one of the things that people will mention when they start taking vitamin K2 is, oh, my teeth are cleaner, you know, they feel more slick, or the dental hygienist will say, oh, you're brushing and flossing more, you've, you've flossed more, even though that hasn't changed. K2 really helps to keep the mouth clean and the teeth clean, as well as big improvements. I've seen in um, individual cases of people with big improvements for gum disease, for example. 
And th- there is this direct effect in the mouth as well. I've seen some fascinating articles published uh, in the past year in Medical Hypothesis in terms of vitamin K2 actually affecting the brain, the hypothalamus, mm-hmm. which then has an effect on the endocrine system, which has a profound effect on uh, dental and oral health. So that's sort of uh, oral health beyond the mouth and, and even into the brain. Uh, so very interesting to me, the research on vitamin K2 and oral health, and, and that's one area where people will see the difference. So I, I didn't see that speculative paper. Can you summarize it? Like, What's the connection between K2 and the hypothalamus and this is a fascinating, mind-blowing paper written by a dentist, uh, published last, I believe it was in March, in Medical Hypotheses, uh, talking about oral health as being a function, health of the teeth in particular, as being a function of the circulation of the fluid through the tiny little dentin tubules that exist in our teeth. And when that becomes disrupted, this ultimately really affects our oral health. But vitamin K2 has an impact on the hypothalamus, which in turn affects the endocrine system, which makes that circulation through the teeth uh, run better and healthier. The example is uh, that he gave is it's like the tooth is sweating instead of absorbing um, unhealthy things into the tooth. And this keeps the tooth clean. It's, it's like a natural circulation in the tiny little tubules of the tooth itself. So the under, the other thing that piqued my interest in you're talking about people taking lots of K2, and I just started upping, I eat quite a bit of grass-fed butter and things like that, but after reading your book, it's like, okay, and I went out and, and got some K2, and now I'm eating it, not quite like candy, but eating <laughs> quite, quite a bit. Um, and talking about the, the, you know, the smooth teeth. So one of the things we know is the, the plaque is a biofilm, right? That's right. And if K2 manages the movement of calcium, one of the components of many biofilms is some calcium. That's and right. so maybe K2, you know, it's, it's all speculative today. Maybe K2 is helping the body break down some of these biofilms. Oh, I, no, I have no doubt about that. Uh, K2 in historical research has been shown to have an antibacterial activity in the mouth mm-hmm. and to decrease the number of bacteria present in the mouth. And that is absolutely a part of this mechanism in terms of oral health. Incredible. Now, let's talk about, so at this point, people might be super excited about, okay, I got to try K2. So let's talk about the the nuts and bolts of what kind do you take? How much do you take? What's safe? Can you kill yourself? Can you overdose? All good questions. The very good news off the top is vitamin K2 is very safe. It seems to have none of the potential toxicity that we see with other fat-soluble vitamins. That, that's because it works differently. So vitamins A and vitamin D, for example, they act like hormones and they, they affect our DNA. And as long as you take them, they will continue. For example, vitamin D, as long as you continue to take vitamin D, it will cause you to absorb more and more and more calcium. And eventually that calcium has got to go somewhere. Vitamin D has no control over where it goes. Uh, vitamin K2 will take that calcium and put it into the right places, but it works differently. It works by activating vitamin K2-dependent proteins. So if those happen to be all activated, then more vitamin K2 won't cause you any harm because it has nothing else to do after that. 
So very safe. Uh, a number of studies have shown uh, from, from different lines of um, testing and research that vitamin K2 is non-toxic. And so you can't take too much. Now, the question is, how much is enough? Because mm-hmm. uh, you don't want to necessarily be uh, taking more than you need to or, or you know, spending money when you don't need to. And we're, we're just sort of figuring that out. Uh, current studies are using uh, around 200 micrograms of this, this, the MK7 form. That's equivalent to about 2,000 micrograms of the MK4 form. We can explain what those are in terms of bone health and about double that for heart health. But again, other individuals and, and even research has been have been used higher doses very safely. I Just to disclose, I've been taking 480 micrograms just as kind of a, a, a starting dose to get caught up. Yep, that's, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, people won't report, very rarely somebody will report stomach upset, but it's pretty mm. uncommon. Um, other than that, it really has uh, no adverse reaction. And I, so when I went online to look for the different, I noticed there was that there are different prices. <laughs> and, and it turned out that the MK4 is like two or three times more expensive. Is the MK4 better? It's not necessarily, no. Uh, so there are Vitamin K2 exists in nature in many different forms. Um, what's called a short-chain form MK4, this, this refers to the length of the molecule, and then there are a number of long-chain forms, MK5, 6, 7, 8, all the way up to 10. Those, those longer ones tend to come from fermented foods, uh, cheeses and, and things like this, and naturally have the MK7, 8, 9, and 10. When you look at supplements, you'll find these two forms, MK4 or MK7. There have been a lot of studies done on each form. In my opinion, they both work, and they both work equally well. I'd love to see more head-to-head studies comparing them side by side, mm-hmm. uh, but from what I can tell, they both work. They just need to be used in their own appropriate dose because the doses of the MK4 form have typically been higher. MK7, you can get away with smaller doses, which is one reason why it's slightly cheaper, the MK7 form. Uh, but there are other reasons, and, and so after that, to me, it comes down to a cost Thing. You know, how much money does it take for you to feel better? Right. And it does, it's, you know, MK7 does seem to be more affordable. Okay. And for people who don't like taking supplements, I know there's some weird foods that are high in K2. Are there any normal foods that are high in K2? There are a couple of normal foods. So the weird food, of course, is natto. That's the Japanese fermented soybean food uh, that is an acquired taste. But, you know, I hear great feedback from people who try it and, and, and have it regularly. Bo- um, both of those people like it, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, one of them likes it and one of them takes it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have, there are some more normal foods you could say, well, a goose liver packed, I don't know how normal you could say that is. It's, it's not easy to come by. For some reason, goose liver is very high in vitamin K2. It, it's, a, it's an unusual food, though, and, and also quite expensive. Uh, there are certain types of cheeses, so Gouda and Brie cheese, very high in vitamin K2. Cheddar, for example, has a little bit. Uh, yogurt has none. Kefir, we don't know. It hasn't been tested, but it's a common question I get asked. I'm hoping to have it tested this year. Hmm. And there are definitely more foods out there that have vitamin K2 than we know of. Right. We need to do more testing. Okay. So Gouda. 
And brie. Gouda and brie. Yeah, and those brie. seem to be uh, the two highest cheeses. And again, it doesn't matter if it's grass-fed milk or raw or pasteurized, but it's the bacteria that will make the vitamin K2 from the milk. Okay. Well, fondue for dinner tonight. There you go. <laughs> you don't have to twist too many arms to get people to eat more Gouda and brie. Um, and, and another unusual food that I've seen um, some testing on recently is emu oil. Ah, uh, no kidding. Yeah, which Isn't is interesting, interesting to me because goose seems to be high in vitamin K2. So mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a connection there, whereas chicken, for example, isn't. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that's a, that's the connection. Huh. Because every once in a while I'll get a patient who comes in and they'll just sing the praises of emu oil. And now, you know, maybe that explains a bit of it. Hmm. Yeah, not. I think it depends on the species of bird. So I've yep. seen tests of different types of emu oil. Uh, Walkabout, for example, is one brand that I've seen tested high in vitamin K2. Huh. And I think that could be one of those you know, traditional foods that yeah. existed that yeah, exactly. may be high in K2. And have you established a ratio between the amount of K2, D, and A? You know, because you've touched on briefly, and I think it's important. And and mm-hmm. I've I've been again since I read your book. It's like I'm going back to my patients and say, okay, I've been recommending they take D now for a long time. It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't get the K2 in there. So I'm right, going back yeah. and saying, you got to get on K2. You got to get on K2. You know, if somebody's taking five thousand IU of D a day, which these days is not an unusual amount, how much right. K2 should they be taking? And then what about vitamin A and now, this is really important, and of course, as soon as we start talking about more than one nutrient, the question is in terms of ratios becomes becomes obvious, and yet they're not studied in this way, right? These nutrients are always studied in isolation. Right. So there isn't an established ratio, but I've come up with one simply because I know that we do need them all and they work together. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically recommend for every 1,000 international units of vitamin D that you're taking 100 uh, micrograms of MK7 or 1,000 micrograms of MK4. That's the, the D to K2 ratio. Okay. So, uh, you know, you were saying before that you're taking around 500 micrograms of, of yep. K2 with your 5,000 IUs of vitamin D. That's good. Vitamin A. I like vitamin A and D in roughly equal amounts. Really? Now, vitamin A has a K2 sparing effect. It'll, it, you can get by on a little bit less K2 no when you have some vitamin A. So that helps because, you know, it makes it, it gets a little bit expensive after a while. And I can't say, for example, if you're taking 10,000 IUs of vitamin D that you need to be taking uh, so much vitamin K2. Simply, you know, we haven't studied it. Right. But equal amounts of vitamin A and D and I would say usually up to around 500 micrograms of, of the K2 would, would cover you. Okay. And I get my A primarily from cod liver oil, the green green pasture, the uh, blue ice or whatever they call it, the, the fermented yeah. cod liver oil. That's fine. I, I recommend vitamin A either from a daily serving of cod liver oil or a weekly serving of organic liver. That's fine. Now, you and I understand why, but why can't you just have beta carotene? Oh, this is this been a real hot issue because vitamin A has been so bad-mouthed for no good reason. I don't know why, but you really cannot rely on beta-carotene for your vitamin A intake. In theory, beta-carotene is converted to vitamin A 
to meet your needs. But in practice, when we look at it, we realize that that often doesn't happen and that people who are given very high amounts even of beta carotene and adequate fat, for example, to convert it can be deficient in vitamin A still. So there are a number of factors and health conditions, and I wouldn't be surprised if Lyme disease was one of them, that can impair your, your conversion of beta carotene to vitamin A. So don't rely on beta carotene for your vitamin A intake. And A is critical for your immune system. Absolutely critical, yes. Okay. Oh, and then kind of the, the, the ugly red-haired stepsister that seems to have been forgotten these days. It used to be a hot topic. What about E, vitamin E? Where does that fit in? Because that's another fat-soluble. Yes, and I really hope that vitamin E is going to get back into spotlight. It lost a lot of respect and would seem because it wasn't the cure for heart disease um, uh. that it was dropped. And there are a lot more studies now. Fortunately, research is, is starting again with vitamin E. And interestingly, the new research coming out of vitamin E seems to be primarily targeted towards brain health, hmm. cognitive function, dementia prevention, that kind of thing. So I think it will end up experiencing a resurgence because of that. And it's, it is actually a little bit of a wild card in that we don't understand vitamin E as well as we do other fat-soluble vitamins, uh, but of course they do all work together, and it seems to do more than you know just be a great antioxidant, and it does seem to have an impact on um, our reproductive system, our endocrine system, and that likely starts in, in the brain and the hypothalamus and the effect that that has on the reproductive system. So do you have a recommendation on the ratio of E as well in this cocktail? I don't necessarily have a recommendation in terms of a ratio of vitamin E because it doesn't seem to interact with the other nutrients uh, directly okay. in ways that we know, but mm-hmm. have some, make sure you're, you're having vitamin E in your diet for sure or, or, or in a supplement if you're not getting it through a diet. And wheat germ oil or what, what yep. form? Yeah, wheat germ oil is fine, um, a wheat germ as well, or an E supplement if you, you know, can't tolerate wheat or for any reason. Mixed tocopherols. I like mixed tocopherols, yes. Okay. That just means more than one form of E. That's exactly, a fancy yeah. way of saying that. Okay. And now if you can give me just a little bit more time, can you tell about your Lyme patient and their experience with K? K2. Yes. You know, I like to be evidence-based on things, and, and certainly my book has is every statement I make there is backed with research, and yet vitamin K2 is 20 or 30 years behind vitamin D in terms of the research. So mm-hmm. what do we do until the research caps, catches up? You know, six months ago, if you had asked me, does vitamin K2 help psoriasis? I would have said, well, there's no evidence to support that, blah, blah, blah. Well, since then, I've had heard of dozens of people who've had their psoriasis um, significantly helped uh, with vitamin K2. And I'm now aware of just one so far, uh, Lyme case, of an individual who was increasing her vitamin K2. In in this case, she was doing it with uh, a type of emu oil, which has been tested to be high in vitamin K2. She had previously been on some pretty strong anti-inflammatory medications like Humira Mm -hmm. and found that after five months with increased K2 intake, inflammation was down, huge improvements in, you know, bone density numbers, which you would expect, but also improvements in cholesterol, blood sugar, as well as actual inflammation. So um, swelling of the joints and pain and things like this. Yeah. So this is very promising, and I would love to hear from people who increase K2 regardless of how they're doing it in terms of the feedback of how that's working for them. Yeah. 
one one of my patients with Lyme uh, came in a few months ago, and she said, "You know, I get these funny little bumps that show up, and at this time they were on her toes, sometimes on her fingers, and you press on them, and they're a little bit like an arthritic joint. Um, mm. They're quite solid. It's not a fluid cyst." Um, and, and they would come and go. And again, kind of listening to about the K, it's like, it could be a, you know, just a temporary deposition of some sort of calcium based something. Um, you know, and it's, it's not something these, these, these lumps, they probably have a technical term, but I don't know what it is. They, they come and go slowly. So it's not something that just kind of erupts like a pimple and then goes away. It's something that builds over time and then, you know, dissipates over weeks. So it, you know, it just kind of fits that profile profile. There are just so many weird things that line up with K and Lyme disease in my mind. And you know what? We all have to deal with this issue of calcium getting in the wrong places and keeping it out of those areas. Yeah. And vitamin K2 is the key to that. That is its job in our body. And so, you know, Lyme disease or not, this is a consideration for us. Now, if you happen to be uh, doing that and and find that the Lyme symptoms are improved, then I, I definitely want to hear about it. And I think I agree with you that there is a, there's a, a connection here. Okay. So... It, I'm not sure exactly when we're going to publish this, probably fairly soon. So what I want people to do, so if you're, if you're seeing this on Facebook or you're hearing this through Facebook, leave a comment or question for Dr. Kate in the, the comment section, uh, underneath the post. Or if you're on the website, there's also a comment section, leave it there. Or if you're listening to this on iTunes, which most of the people do, uh, send me an email. It's McKay at LimeNinja.com, and that's M-A-C-K-A-Y at LimeNinja.com. And let us know if you've done K2, what your experience is, because this is this might be one of the key pieces that brings together so many of these other things that people are doing. You know, I think we're treating around this K2 deficiency, and if we can get this deficiency handled, then maybe some of these other treatments will fall into place and become either uh, superfluous, not necessary, or much more effective. Yeah, and if you've been taking vitamin D, you absolutely need K2 with it. Or if you've tried vitamin D and have had an adverse reaction to it, that can be a sign of imbalance with these nutrients. So this is where K2 can become very important. Yeah, and that brings me, are you familiar with the Marshall Protocol? I've heard of it, but I'm I'm not an expert on this. Yeah, so I came across him early on in researching stuff, and he was the opposite of everything I had heard about. So his protocol essentially is get vitamin D out of your system. The only reason that makes any sense if you're totally K2 deficient, right? Exactly, yes. And uh, that is, you know, concerning we absolutely need vitamin D. Yeah. But when you see problems with it, it's because it's out of balance. It's because it's not being supported and balanced by, for example, vitamin K2. So as I was saying before, D will make you absorb calcium, then K2 puts it in its right place. Dr. Kate, you have been more than generous with your time. I hate to wrap up, but I know you have real work to do besides talking <laughs> to me. And before we go, though, please tell us about websites you may have, the where people can get your book, how people can get hold of you. 
definitely. People can reach me through my website, www.drkatend.com, or just Google me, Google my name. My book is available through all the usual online book retailers. Be patient with them. They tend to run out. That's <laughs> uh, the good book's news. not out of print, but then uh, <laughs> they'll get it back in. Okay, terrific. Thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate the time and love and effort you've put into bringing K2 back into our awareness. Well, you're very welcome, and thanks for having me and helping to increase awareness of this very important and overlooked nutrient. All right, Dr. Kate. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks you too, McKay. Take care. Bye-bye. This interview reminds me of why I'm interested in nutrition in the first place. The idea that one single nutrient or vitamin in this case can have such a profound effect on the body. It's just fascinating to me. It is. And I've started making sure that all my patients are getting enough K2 right now. And part that interests me so much is her emphasis and, and expertise on really the ratio between vitamin D, vitamin A, and vitamin K. And that's, you know, that's a really great stable base to build your vitamin uh, routine around. So yeah, just this interview is so important. Share this with your friends, get this information out there. It's critical. It's absolutely critical because otherwise just D by itself can be harmful. And that's what some of the studies are showing. And the Vitamin K is the, excuse me, the vitamin K is the missing piece. It's the key to putting it all together. I was going to say vitamin K is the key right there. Absolutely <laughs> is. <laughs> all right. If you need more Lime Ninja in your life, make sure you subscribe to us on your iPhone or iPad. And that way you won't miss out on the great conversations like these. Also, please leave us a review for us on iTunes. If you're listening on your iPhone, search for us on the podcast app, hit the search icon, type in Lime Ninja Radio, click the big ninja button. If you're not subscribed yet, go ahead and do that. Select the review button, scroll down, and select write a review, and make sure to leave us five stars. You know, if you have been listening this far, you must be getting something out of it. And it sounds like you need a PhD just to leave a review. But if you know how to leave a review, will you do it for us? It's important. By doing that, you'll help more people find this great information and get the good info out there about Lyme disease so they don't have to listen to the CDC. And last, maybe even more important than that, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with a little education the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know while learning CPR, a ninja accidentally brought the practice dummy to life? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.